FinTech Hunting is hosted by Michael Hammett, JD, CMT, keynote speaker, author, and founder and president of Next Level Advisors. Join Michael as he seeks out tech visionaries, leading lenders, trailblazing executives, and other financial influencers to bring you actionable insights and lead generation tactics, all centered around industry greatness and success. Our guest on today's uh, episode of FinTech Hunting is Jim Deitch of Terra Verde. Jim, welcome to the show. Michael, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Jim, you have a wealth of experience. You have over 25 years of experience in mortgage banking. You're doing some incredible things in the industry. But before we jump into all of that, could you give our listeners just a little bit of background uh, about you and, and Terra Verde? Sure. So my background is uh, in the capital markets, starting uh, first in international trade finance and then got into mortgage banking uh, in the uh, late 80s and used uh, a number of banks, uh, two of which I started, uh, to build retail, wholesale and correspondent lending operations, uh, sold the banks to a variety of, of larger uh, entities, one being PNC, one being M&T, one being uh, BBT is the ultimate purchaser, and then began Terra Verde in 2011 with the mission to help lenders uh, really find a way to earn consistent profitability uh, over the cycles of the lending uh, seasonality and economic cycles, and to do so in a way that employs technology to take the costs out, improve customer experience, and achieve efficiency. Excellent. So when you talk about helping lenders with profitability, what are some of the, the biggest impediments to lenders enhancing or driving greater profitability that they're facing right now in today's market? Michael, that's a great question. Uh, Mike Fratitoni, uh chief economist of the MBA, uh, has a chart that he often comments on, and it's looking at the quarterly profitability of mortgage bankers over the time frame from 2008 to the present time. And the low point on that chart is about minus 14 basis points of, of losses. And the high point is just over 100. But it looks like a roller coaster, up, down. And it's because of a variety of things related to volume, economic cycles, and uh, the, 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 the pressure on costs because a lender is either too big or too small, never just right. And I contrast that with a client that takes a little different approach. And they sit back and say, we want to earn, in this case, you know, 90 basis points pre-tax profit year in, year out. And starting with that 90 basis points, they solve backwards to say, what do I have to do in terms of cost structure? What do I have to do in terms of product? What do I have to do in terms of margin? And then they select the geographies, the originators, the uh, ability to process, underwrite, and close loans. And at the end of the day, they end up with 90 basis points. And when you look at their profitability and overlay it on Mike Fratitoni's chart, which has a lot of volatility in it, I come away with the understanding that it is possible to consistently make money in this business, but it just takes a different approach. So when you talk about that different approach, can you give us give the listeners a little bit more insights into what are some of those things 
that they need to approach differently if they want to have that consistent profitability instead of constantly riding on that roller coaster? Michael, that's an excellent uh, an excellent question. I think one of the things that uh, you know, as, as I look at clients that achieve consistent and and stable profitability, uh, none of them are motivated by volume. They manage on profit, and the mental shift to manage on profit is a hard one because this is a commodity business. And the conventional wisdom is that volume solves all problems. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Because in times of high volume, your costs creep up, you add people, you add inefficiency to the process simply to get the loans done. And then things turn around. Many people are not as adept at reducing costs as they are at building the organization. So you get a cost push in here that's difficult to navigate around. And then secondly, instead of simply sizing the industry by cutting costs, people try to play the margin game to cut margin to increase volume. And you get this never-ending cycle of margin compression uh, followed by inadequate profitability. Uh, you get an external trigger such as we have right now with interest rates falling, which increases profitability because margins and, and volumes go up. But what I call profit intelligence is really thinking about how does one structure their business so it's consistently profitable? And the biggest mental change is forget volume, think about profit and build from the bottom up. And that includes the ability to very, very uh, arduously contain costs. Excellent, you mentioned a term in there, profitability intelligence. Expand upon that a little bit because, you know, common sense says, well, I mean, most lenders, you would think most mortgage bankers, they're looking at their spreadsheets, they're looking at their margins. But what do you mean by profitability intelligence and how is that different than how traditional lenders are running their business? Well, profit intelligence is is really a term of art that one of my partners created and uh Mainly Casanueva found that if you look at what's left after all of the revenue goes to pay costs, uh, what you really want is, is that profit that's left. So she back solved and said, if we know that we want to earn, say, 50 basis points or 100 basis points, uh, you start with the bottom line and work backwards. Traditionally, most budgeting, most financial planning starts with, let's look at the market, let's make an assumption on volume, and then build the model top down. So profit intelligence is a method of building the model from the bottom up. So for instance, if you want to have high profitability and you're going to start with a clean sheet of paper, you might say, I want to concentrate in govy lending because margins are better. I want to concentrate in areas where it's not a central city where competition isn't so high. I want to find originators that focus just on the purchase business. I want to have underwriters who are very adept at deal structure and making sure that they can get the deal done and structured you know, with no more than two passes through underwriting. And you build that operational model that says, here's how we're going to achieve the 50, 60, 70, 80 basis points that we're looking to achieve. And then you let volume float based upon market conditions. Uh, 
but more importantly, you have the ability to scale costs upward and downward. And that is the key element. It's not applying technology. It's not growing the market. It's not market share. The profit intelligence piece comes from starting at the bottom line and constructing the business model to always return that, that profitability desired. So it's, it's a mental shift from top down to bottom up. So with that mental shift, how does technology, best practices, a new model for them to drive profitability, how do those three things, four things intertwine to really uh, allow the lender to reach the profitability goals that they've set out? So, Michael, I'm going to do what a, a good politician does, is answer a different question than the one you've asked. And we'll get to your question in just a minute. Fair enough. Um, but, but, but for your listeners, you know, what I just said will probably grate on 90% of the listeners. And the reason is that uh, the, the, the mental model is so ingrained. And it's not wrong. It's just that everybody's doing it. And when everybody has the same model, you introduce margin compression, you introduce uh, volatility. So I'm not saying that profit intelligence is the only way to run a business. But if you want to have a consistently profitable business, it's a way to think about structuring one's own enterprise so that you're building that cost flexibility into the model. And it's not looking at I'm going to use technology to drive down costs. I'm going to use outsourcing to drive down costs. I'm going to use direct-to-consumer to drive down costs. Whatever people think, it, it's not just a single cost reduction strategy. It's really looking at how you build a model that's very scalable in which as much of the cost as possible is variableized, and that includes uh, compensation for sales. So. Uh, you know, for for those that say, Jim, that that's you know what you're talking about, I don't buy. I understand that position. I just ask you to think about the possibility of what if you ran a branch or a division or a region uh, using that profit intelligence model, and let the rest of your organization on on the model you're currently using you just see the differences. Uh, and I'm not asking that people throw away all of their thinking, but rather adapt it to say initially, not just doing top-down, but doing bottom-up and, and doing it almost iteratively and doing it uh, in a coincidental manner so that you know one can really test this theory. What I believe is if you test it and you're true to it, you will find it it changes your business. So when you mention that it changes their business, what are some of the tangible things that they'll see in their business or what is some of the intelligence that will come out of them driving their business from this profitability model, whether it's a branch, whether it's a region, whether it's a division, what are some of those tangible things that the lender can grab a hold of and say, oh, I see, this is what it's telling me about loan officers or whatever it may be. So uh, what, what, what happens is a couple of things. Uh, you know, if, you, if you change your mental model of a business, um, I'll go back to an example in the of a parallel industry, the airline industry. And that's consumer facing, it's got very high labor cost, and it, it also has uh, the cost of a, of, a, of a mistake can be pretty severe. So uh, 30 years ago, uh, there were three 
people doing flying duties in many commercial airline cockpits. You had a captain, you had a co-pilot, and you had a uh, flight engineer that was managing both engines and, and communication. And Boeing had an interesting idea that said, what if we automated all of the flight engineer duties and essentially got down to two people, the, the pilot and the first officer? Well, that's a mental model change in which it says, we're going to take a segment of what is being done and we're going to automate it, but we're also gonna fundamentally change the duties of the two pilots that are flying. And you're not going to have necessarily the hierarchical function of a captain and then a first officer or co-pilot. We're going to have the, the idea of crew resource management that says we have the pilot flying, flying and the pilot monitoring. And either the pilot or the first officer can be the pilot flying or the pilot monitoring. And generally the crew switches each leg. What's happened is the accident rate has come down. The efficiency rate of on-time departure and on-time arrival has gone up. And the amount of work being done in the cockpit, the routinized tasks have been delegated, but the, the key decisions on flight safety and flight management are being shared in a predictable way and a flexible way. So how's this relate to mortgage banking? It's fundamentally changing the model that says, we're going to have three people up front, all highly paid. They're going to have very stratified and defined duties. It's gonna be a hierarchical function where the captain controls all to a much more participative and collaborative environment with two people in the cockpit. Well, if you take three individuals and make them two, the labor savings is tremendous, but it didn't come by cutting costs. It came by re-envisioning how you run the business. So that's really the message that I would suggest that people think about. How can I re-envision the business so it's driven on the bottom line, not on volume, and then flex the infrastructure and the costs to be more variableized? That's, I think, the essence of profit intelligence. And once you begin to think that way, you find that, for instance, you may have markets in which you do a lot of volume, but it's all high balance or very high balance conforming, which is very competitive. Uh, and, and ultimately you have a very high cost to originate, a very high cost for office infrastructure, a very high cost for people, but relatively low profitability per loan. And the question comes, well, do I really wanna have that office? And the traditional thinking is, yeah, but if I cut that office, I'm gonna lose 10% or 5% of my volume and my direct costs then won't cover that. My question would be, why are direct costs fixed? Why shouldn't they be variable? So that's the message. It's really a mental model message, and it's one in which it can be applied at retail, direct to consumer, TPO, and it can be applied through all of the uh, elements of, of running the business on the operational and secondary marketing sides, et cetera. Perfect. Now, is there software? Is there technology? Are there solutions out there that can help once they've made this mental shift? Is there software that can help them manage this process more effectively and really bring to their attention these different drivers that you're speaking of? Uh, absolutely. And, and it starts with just the thinking of, of how one conceives the business. 
you know, part of the research I've done into costs, uh, and, and, and a lot of it's done with the help of data from uh, Mortgage Bankers Association and Mike Fratitoni and Marina Walsh, it costs about $2,600 of labor to process a loan file. So think about that. $2,600 of labor at $50 an hour says somebody's spending 52 hours building a stack of paper 800 pages high. Buick builds their enclave SUV for about $2,300 of direct labor. So it costs more to build a paper file than it does to build a car. That's just crazy. So how does one approach this? Well, first, the credit card business makes all decisions based upon data, and they make them instantaneously. The lending business on the residential side has got to be adopting direct sourced data from a variety of things, whether it's form free or, or other uh, providers of data. But if you can get that consumer data directly sourced from the bank or the employer, first of all, you know it's valid. Second of all, you know it's accurate. Third of all, you know the investor is going to accept it. And all of the validation elements that have to occur in a traditional paper file are just eliminated. But more importantly, if you're going to use direct source data, you have to change the thinking of all the operational people and the loan officers. Because the impact of direct source data is it's very efficient, but the mental model of all those involved in mortgage banking over the last 30 years say, no, I need the pay stubs, I need the paper to back me up. Well, if you put paper in a loan file together with direct source data, you've defeated the purpose because right. a processor or an underwriter can't help themselves. They're just going to look at it and then they're going to want to reconcile it. And even though the investor will buy the file with no repurchase uh, liability on the directly sourced data, the structure of the lender is such that they just can't help themselves. That the people are going to look at that data or look at that paper. So. When I talk about mental models, if you go to a direct source to data approach, and some are doing it and some are doing it effectively, uh, it is a game changer in terms of customer satisfaction and in terms of customer uh, pull through. But yet, adoption is relatively low. Day one certainty has been with us for a while, and you know the, the, the hit rates on assets are pretty high, the hit rates on others are lower. But ultimately, any new technology is going to have adoption and it will come up. And usually it comes up really fast. Perfect. Well, Jim, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you because I know you have an exciting new book coming out to the industry. Could you give us a little background of, of the book, the book's title, uh, and more importantly, all of the interviews you did with mortgage bankers to come up with this latest edition of your book? Surely. Well, the, the name of the book is Disruptive Fintech. And it's based on interviews with about 100 C-level executives throughout the industry. And the basic premise is that uh, there's not one piece of technology per se that's going to disrupt the industry, but it's rather the mental model of how one can look at the coalescing of collection of customers and the coalescing of the collection of product and the logistics to uh, essentially provide the execution and structure for those uh, those products. So I think of Amazon, which really has a business model that uh, provides uh, access to customers to virtually any product, but more importantly, they have the logistical system to serve that customer 
so the customer can buy easily, they can return easily, they can monitor shipments, they can uh, post reviews. All of it is really a self-empowering tool to allow a customer to make purchase, purchase decisions on their, own, on their own terms when they want. And I think the lending industry, particularly with direct source data, will be heading in that direction. So the book is really a, a look at the business models that Amazon uses and traces them back to actually antiquity because the first business model uh, that, that is based upon uh, the, the Greek city-states, uh, which is a, a trading model where the Greeks assembled products, they assembled people in markets they called agora, and then used the maritime shipping mechanism as well as uh, creating a currency and creating trade finance uh, to be able to build uh, the volume and build the profitability of that model. And if you look at that, I, I trace the Greek model from the 6th century forward to Amazon, and then speculate a little bit about what this means for realtors, builders, mortgage bankers, appraisers, title agents, and other constituents in the lending ecosphere. So that's, uh, that's, that's the book, and it uh, will be released in late October. Fantastic. And Jim, where can they find that book? It's available on Amazon. Uh, they can come to your website. Where should they go to find this uh, exciting new book? Yeah, so my publisher, uh, DeGreuter, is uh, putting the book on Amazon. It's also being distributed through uh, both European and American bookstores at a variety of universities, but it's available easily on Amazon. Excellent. Jim, I greatly appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with our listeners. I hope you have a fantastic day. Michael, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Take care. Fintech Hunting is brought to you by Next Level Advisors. Next Level Advisors, where businesses come to grow.